Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to Financial Foresight. We have the whole gang back together again today to talk about a number of different topics. I think first and foremost, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the uh, the market and some of the news that's out there. As you may or may not know, last week was the quickest 10% drop that the market has ever seen. And with that, it's predicated what some would say on, on coronavirus fears and, and what that impact is. But Guys, any thoughts on the market and, and what you're seeing and what's going on? Buy gold. <laughs> no, um, it, it's uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't want to uh, speak too quickly because we were talking about it right away uh, just before the call. But um, I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting on which side of the fence that you're on. Um, I'm probably more on the side that uh, we're overreacting. And also, I think that people really like to tie narratives to the market. So, um, you know, people will say, oh, why, you know, coronavirus is taking the market down. And it's like, well, the market is based on literally billions of different decisions made by millions of different consumers and thousands of different businesses from around the world. Um, to, to say that one thing is actually impacting every one of those decisions is probably a uh, a little bit above and beyond and uh, an overstatement. And uh, this just kind of reminds me that the markets are uh, run by humans and humans have emotions. And uh, this is this is kind of what you see when, when uh, emotions start flaring up. Quick question to the group. So do we believe the market is efficient? Based on what you just said, Colin, I would assume the answer is no. I think it's efficient in a sense that you cannot uh, readily make decisions to beat the market uh, on a consistent basis. But I do believe, you know, it's kind of like the, the Bob Schiller, Eugene Fama argument, of course, right? And uh, I think that you just, you really can't. So when I'm talking about like decision making uh, and timing the market, like I can't say, okay, wow, we're so uh, irrational that I can go ahead and make decisions and make money off of it. But at the same time, I do think that uh, a lot of uh, the way that the market moves is not completely uh, efficient in a sense that every decision that we make is calculated. So it's it's uh, kind of a, a more of a both yes and no uh, answer than it is one or the other. Dwight, Ian, anyone want to give me a straight answer since Colin dodged my question? <laughs> I, yeah, I still think they're I still think they're efficient, but I you know I think like what Colin's to go off what he's saying is perception is reality. And so it's, you know, when we look at some of these, um, 
uh, like the academics. It's like, congratulations, you got to look at a specific event 20 years after the fact and analyze it from every single different way. Um, somebody has, you know, all these folks are making decisions, businesses, investment advisors, everything else are making decisions with the data that they have uh, at the time they're doing it. So I think it's efficient. We just may not like the results, but perception is reality. And that's what we're what we're seeing. And I think we're seeing a lot of um, <clears throat> I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of emotion baked into uh, how this works. But again, I, I tend to be much more long-term focused. So what does this look like long-term? You know, probably a blip on the radar, just like 2008 was in 1980, the 80s were and everything else. So up and to the right. I, I think that where I fall on this issue is that individual pricing is efficient. So like, I can't argue that I know something about Google that the rest of the market doesn't know right and therefore be able to beat them out on pricing that's called insider trading unless you have like true perfect knowledge of something that nobody else in the world knows then you're not going to be able to win the quote-unquote like buy low sell high game better than anybody else i don't believe that the market is um rational is where i would say i fall so rationality and efficiency are different in my mind. So I think that the market prices things efficiently, but I don't think that the market behaves rationally as a whole. So macro trends happen based on emotions while micro pricing is efficient. That's how I view the market. Isaiah? Yeah, it's inefficient. Um, it's always striving to get more efficient, but um, similar to kind of what Ian talked about, I think micro efficiency, macro inefficient um, from that standpoint where, again, there's so many CFAs in the world that can analyze why certain companies are, are you know, their value. And so it's priced very, very um, consistently and well, which is what we want. You want that market to be more efficient. But then if you look macro, like from an asset allocation point, which is most, if all of your returns, like that piece of it, I think there's inefficiencies where you think about like biases around home country bias. So you cannot tell me that you know all the people that have all the, the money put in these different areas that maybe doesn't make sense. And yeah, I just I don't believe the market is 100% efficient. I think it's continuing to strive to get towards efficiency. Can oh, you I mean, profit off of those inefficiencies? Yes, I do believe that 100%. I think how would you explain factors from that standpoint? So they're empirically valid um, that go back you know through throughout history, and then it would take I think the value factor, if I recall, is like 67 years before it would be proved invalid so yes i think there are certain characteristics of and we're just talking about equities for this example that have proof that they are durable advantages now has value done well in the last 10 years no and the reason is because people can't hang on to those things long enough and it is really stressful and hard to do that's part of why there's a premium behind certain things like value and momentum low vol small versus large like all those different characteristics i believe in that um, there's a lot of academic evidence and also like practitioner real world evidence to show that. So I do believe that there are ways that you can add slight advantages, slight, not massive, like you're not going to run the uh, medallion fund and have excess returns out the wazoo where you can compound at 36% a year. Like that's not what I'm talking about. Dang it. I was just about to move all my clients assets over to. <laughs> I, th I think the, I think the reality and the way that I look at the market and investing is that you can certainly optimize via these macro trends, but the question is, what's the delta for your time always? But that's just me. It's like, we're going to get a portfolio that is going to perform 
well enough with the market and build it in a way that is consistent and as good as we can. And then, yeah, eliminate some home country bias because a lot of people show up with 100% U.S. equities and you're like, what What are you doing? There's so many other countries in the world. We're talking about, you know, 200 countries and you own one of them. And I also like to talk about like magnitude matters, right? So like, obviously everybody's portfolio is going to be different. Everyone's going to have a different situation. But, I, you know, certainly if somebody has a $10 million portfolio and you you know, and something changes by 25 basis points, it's going to be drastically different than somebody that has a $100,000 portfolio. So some of those conversations are, well, how'd the market do? It's like, well, what was your savings rate this year? Did you max out your 401k? Did you max out your IRA? Did you max out your HSA? Because those are all things that you have control over. And if you have a $100,000 portfolio, suddenly you're making a 20% difference on your net worth versus what the market's doing. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it shouldn't like you shouldn't care about it. It's just, you know, let's focus. I mean, again, we're all CFPs. So like, let's focus on the things we can do. Like you said, Ian, like let's, let's optimize what we can. Let's work on tax efficiency and let's work on behavior and making sure we're doing all of the right things. Um, I'm probably going to put out an article this week, just kind of talking about process and talking about um, goals and just going from an idea, which is, Hey, I want to run a marathon to a goal being, I want to run Chicago marathon in 2020, October, whatever, 2020 to the process of putting together an 18 week, uh, you know, training plan. And do you need to run, you know, four to five days every single week for the next 18 weeks to make it happen? No, but you got to make sure you're doing the long runs. You got to make sure you're running two, three times a week during the week um, and doing the things week in, week out. So that way, when you tow the line for the actual race, you go and do it like that. You know, you put the hard work in over 18, 20 weeks and um, you know, right, Colin, I think you're the person that's ran the marathon most recently. So right. uh, it's put in the time, right? Do the yeah. work. I like that it's funny that you even uh, and just for goals in general above and beyond or outside of a marathon, how big of a difference is it to just say, I want to run a marathon or say, I want to run the Chicago marathon on mm-hmm. October 1st. Mm-hmm. You exactly. know, that's so much more real. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, kind of going back to what Ian and Isaiah were saying was that uh, you're, you're just focusing on more of what you can control and, uh, and trying to make the goals a reality. And I think that's really what our job is, kind of going full circle here. 100%. I think that's wise words and, and a good thing to, to come back to because, again, as much as we talk about investing, yeah, there's a lot of other things that are far more impactful at the end of the day that someone can do. Um, but with, again, we're going to kind of stay on the market topic. So we talked about efficiency. Um, the big news out, obviously, is the coronavirus. Does it matter? The impact? Any thoughts? I know there's been a ton of stuff pushed out. Um, we create more information in the last two years than we've created in all of human history prior to that. So each day we're getting inundated with all this stuff. How do you process it? What it, what's, the, what's the action, if any? Well, I think the first question you asked is, does it matter? And I think the answer is yes. And it matters from a couple of different perspectives, but speaking from our perspective as financial planners, um, I think that it matters in the sense that it has affected a lot of aspects of the global like travel and, and shipping and all of these things, which can be, you know, to, to Colin's point, can be assigned as a narrative for why the stock market crashed or whatever. And that's one way you could look at it. But you could also look at it as do your clients have travel plans to East Asia or West Asia in the next, you know, 10, 10 years? Well, 
I, I mean, I don't think it'll affect them 10 years out, but if it's next year, maybe, you know? Um, so I, I think that it does matter. Um, the way that it's affecting economies and, and restricting travel and everything is very relevant to the work that we do. So yeah, it matters. And then obviously there's, you know, the medical side where it matters for completely different reasons that we're not really great enough to speak about. Prior to starting the call, our random generator had picked me for tweet of the week and I can't think of a better time to quick, uh, interject and uh, alley-oop my tweet of the week into the conversation. So to keep the co- to keep it flowing here, um, I picked a, a tweet from the White Coat Investor. So kind of a, a doctor gone wealth management, uh, pretty popular on Twitter and, and has a great blog and things like that. I thought this was kind of an interesting tweet coming from someone who's not at Ritholtz Wealth Management, who knows less than nothing about, uh, you know, the medical side of the coronavirus. And he just simply tweeted out uh, basically a list of different diseases that have huge death tolls, you know, of um, just the common flu, 56,000 people die from the common flu in the U.S., 50,000 from pneumonia, 13,000 from UTI, 60,000 from RSV, uh, and two people now have died from the corona. And there's a couple links underneath it that talk about um, some of the symptoms that you actually get when you have corona and that most young people who are healthy, uh, it's hardly even lethal. And the the two deaths in the U.S. were from folks in their 70s that uh, had other health issues. And that's, I guess that's kind of what I wanted to bring up was, you know, we should probably keep this in perspective. And that's why I was like, you know, I don't know if the market like really could, could something that has such a low uh, impact as far as like deaths and and real numbers uh, actually take the markets down single handedly by four, five, six, 10%, um, you know, and can justifiably like I don't know I'd say that's probably a little aggressive but I think Ian what your point is important that it has ripple effects and I think that's kind of where the the we started the conversation of what you know what we think uh, you know how is the market efficient uh, yes and no uh, because people are make you know overreacting so it makes it inefficient but um, you know it's still perspective is reality so you know, at the end of the day, the market is down that percentage or that, that amount, and that's real. And the canceled flights are real. The, you know, the fear that people have is real. And whether it's justified or not is subjective because they're scared. So who are we to say that it's not real or that it's not important? Um, yeah, I think that's it's just kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it matters. You know, certainly you can see it happening in the actual, the way the market reacted last week. You can, you know, see how, I mean, I have a kid at daycare and we just got an email that just said, hey, look, like if you're going outside of the United States and we kindly ask that you tell us where you went and make sure you stay home and uh, for 14 days, you know, um, Toyota or Toyota, Tokyo Marathon just had, I think just the only the elite runners I thought I saw just very quickly, like, and that's one of the largest marathon, you know, going back to running one of the largest marathons in the world. And, you know, so I, there's a lot of questions what's going to happen with March Madness, right? The basketball tournament. 
tournament coming up. It, you know, is that what's that going to look like? So whether it's real or perceived, there are definitely real actions that are, uh, you know, that are coming out of it. not to get too tangential on it. But one of the things, uh, you know, I've talked about, especially with clients outside of even this is just, hey, we have different pieces of your portfolio together for different pieces or for different reasons, different goals. And so this equity piece that we're seeing a lot of volatility in is tends to be for more of the longer term piece of this. So one of the questions is, is we don't know what is going to cause uh, the volatility. Like we don't know exactly what's going to cause it. We just know that it's going to happen, but that we're rewarded for the long-term holding of those, of that piece of that. So you don't have to be hundred percent equity. So if you, you know, if you see the market drop 10, 12%, um, you know, if you're hundred percent equity, then yeah, it's going to hurt. But if you've dialed back some of that risk previously, um, then you might not be seeing some of that. So I just kind of go back to, Hey, where, what are our different buckets of money? We've got cash and that's for these purposes and the shorter, for the shorter term goals, we've got bonds and fixed income. And then, you know, we've got these equity pieces in here. And so let's keep some of that, um, you know, in perspective. So whether the market's efficient or not, can we take advantage of it? Uh, short term is is interesting it's a good point but if we're not looking at using that money for 10 15 20 years to me it's it's again goes just back to magnitude and what can we control and what can we do i was actually having this conversation with somebody today who is overweighted in equities and he's been a client for a while so we were talking through why he would want to rebalance that and this is a perfect example of why it's because when the market drops, you could rebalance and buy more equities for no additional money, which is kind of neat. Um, so, you know, just thoughts. This is why we constantly preach diversified portfolios. It's a good time for tax loss harvesting. Good to, if you if you know if that's your jam. It's a good time to think about Roth conversions with those IRA balances being lower. Some good planning opportunities. I think Dwight, you really killed it with the uh, understanding what your goal is and like how do you make decisions. Like okay, guys, we're we're talking all this stuff. Like that's and if someone's listening, like that's really cute. But what do I do with my money? It's down and I'm scared. Well, you really should if you are investing in equities be having a long-term perspective and knowing that the next end of the world, the next apocalypse du jour is always going to be served up on the menu, is always going to be on CNBC, is always going to be, you know, the, the, the big scary monster hiding under your bed. Um, and we have continued to thrive through world wars and, you know, all kinds of crazy scary things and human civilization is continuing to thrive continuing to get better more people are literate we're living longer everything is slowly but surely getting better and better um, and it, you know it takes years and it takes setbacks and it takes devastation once in a while but if you have if you're invested long term then then I'd say probably the best answer is to do nothing and I know that seems scary and it seems silly maybe rebalancing or doing some things like that is awesome but if you need the money in the next five years, equities probably isn't the correct wealth building tool for the job. Yeah, I have so many different thoughts on this because a, you know, even with the market correction of you know, call it twelve percent by the time this airs, who knows what what it does? Whether it's up, down, more, who knows? I mean, it just literally reset the the market back to like September, October of twenty nineteen. So last year the market was up thirty percent. So you literally, if you invested for you know, two years, you're still up by quite a bit. And that's a short term frame, or short time frame. So think about it from that lens. Don't just look at a year to date number all the time. 
Um, second, like you, we talk about diversification. We've chatted so much offline out, outside of the podcast about our opinions on different things. Uh, I have a different approach on some of these different things than everyone else, but I think we're all trying to get to the same thing, which is you, know, you have diversification there for a reason. And it's going to mean you say sorry in times when the market rips up. But then in times like this, it's like, hey, this is why we do this. And great quote from Dr. Daniel Crosby in his book, The Behavioral Investor, which is a great, great, great book. Obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of his because I quote him all the time. People lose 13% of their IQ when they're under financial stress. So don't make any changes to your investment portfolio when things are, you know, the proverbial shit is hitting the fan. You have to make those changes way before. And if you're going to do anything cute, um, tactical, diversification, all these other different ideas, which I'm a big fan of, you do them way in advance. You don't implement these things after the fact. Just like um, something that's really great in a market like we just saw, there's some things that did really well. Um, it's like trying to add those after it's already happening is trying to shut the door after the horse ran out of the stable. Like you've already missed it. So at that point, you're only causing yourself more harm. So don't don't try to make up for something you didn't do prior uh, after the fact. So you have to make these decisions up front and then and just ride it out from that standpoint. And again, like Colin said, as much as that sucks and feels awful, remember that. So when you are making a ton of money and things feel great, maybe then that's a time to, to make some of those adjustments. You don't make them when, when things are are struggling but that kind of transitions also into the, the final thing we wanted to chat on and i know i don't want to take up too much time but i had written a piece called don't buy fear uh, on my blog in 2018 like kind of when we saw this huge sell-off right around christmas down 20 percent, and then you know 2019 took off again so maybe that's the same play this time but i just put uh, a, a caption with it just beware there's gonna be a wave of financial salespeople, aka insurance sales one sales people who've been waiting for a market sell-off to push cash value. Life insurance has the buffer or safe money in your investment buckets. And I put it's all poop with the poop emoji. Uh, I thought that was a little funny, but cheeky. Uh, someone did not think that, and I'll get to that in a second. I said I wrote this a while back, but it's time to share again. You'll, you will be fine. You never make big decisions in time of stress. Then I quoted the, the quote about Crosby and the financial, financial stress in losing IQ. So I had someone write back to me on LinkedIn. Don't know this person, but he said, you're a smart guy, Isaiah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I don't know if he knows me and thinks I'm smart or not, but he goes, it's disappointing to see you say it's all, you know, poop emoji. Many exceptional advisors use life insurance for a lot of great reasons when appropriate. Certainly we need to hold one each other accountable and educate yet quoting Dr. Crosby out of context to support your statement is not productive. Let's keep it positive together. We all win. Um, I'm a huge fan of collaboration and, and interaction, but uh, this was one where I, I told him, hey, I'd love to chat more on this because I'd like to learn his insights and also make sure I'm not missing anything. But um, I have yet to really feel like I found a great fit for when cash value life insurance from an investment standpoint or any standpoint makes a ton of sense. I just wanted to open up to you guys to a, educate the listeners. Um, I kind of have a hard line stance that it never makes sense. And, and maybe that's wrong. So <clears throat> I think there's a few examples that I've, I've definitely seen uh, where either there was no life insurance and that would have been really helpful uh, or whole. And I know you're speaking specifically the whole life. So we'll, we'll use that example, not just term um, in terms of it being an investment product. Yeah, I agree that there's probably better tools for that. And I think what you were mentioning in the beginning and Colin, you hit on as well in terms of like that emotion is trying to make some decisions while we're sober and understanding what are we making these decisions around and what tools need to be put in place in order to do that. Um, when we're not, you know, when we're trying to take out some of the emotion is a good way to think about it. But, um, I think it can make a lot of sense when there's illiquid assets. So I've seen folks, um, have large real estate portfolios, 
um, and have to sell uh, real estate uh, in uh, that was greatly depressed, like in the 0809 time period, uh, in order to pay estate plan, estate taxes. Which I know all of us are pretty young. We don't remember when estate taxes were actually really a real thing and not just a boogeyman because they weren't, you know, eleven and a half million dollar single exemptions like they are now. Um, so that's a really bu- that's a huge bummer because now that's doing exactly like what we tell our clients not to do in investment portfolios, which is, you know, sell when your mar- when your portfolio is depressed and you never get the upside. So. I've seen that happen, um, that I think if life insurance had been put in place and it would have needed to be whole life because of the age, um, that I think that could have been some good planning that could have been done. Um, and then same thing again, with illiquid assets, just with, um, business planning and buy sell agreements. Um, I think depending on what somebody is trying to do, uh, and the longevity of some of that, then it can help provide, uh, that needed liquidity. Um, so that way, People aren't trying to make, you know, short-term, long-term lasting impact decisions on a short-term basis because cash wasn't there. Um, and I think that can tend to happen. You know, you know, granted, like if you have a $10 million portfolio, uh, you're not going to have estate taxes anyway as of today, but that could change um, and you might have a bet. Uh, it could be easier to be a little more liquid in that because um, it's relatively easy to sell investments. But, you know, you might not want to have to do that last week. Um, so I you know, I tend to agree with you, Isaiah, that it's generally not a great answer, that it does, that it, it can fit things. And again, I, I usually tend to see it where it fits, where there's truly illiquid assets where you can't just sell 10% of a, of a you know, commercial real estate building. Like that doesn't really work. So often we're not getting into syndication. I'm not talking about that. I, I have one other example that jumps to mind, which is... Um still not investing related. I really don't think that cash value products provide a good mitigation for investing. You, money should be invested or in cash, in my opinion. Um, it should be invested in a diversified portfolio or if the time horizon is too short, doesn't need to be. But the other example that I have is related to um, health and specifically long-term care. Um, Long-term care products, the OG long-term care products are basically going away. Um, So original long-term care insurance is on the way out. It's either priced basically out of the market or the health restrictions are getting harder and harder because the original design behind these products proved not to be true, which is that the insurance companies just haven't been able to profit off of them like they thought they would. Um, And I think long-term care is a really big concern for somebody who's like semi-wealthy but not rich i guess so anyone in the 500,000 to 2 million dollar range um a really big long-term care event if you have a significant other can wipe out a huge percentage of your net worth and make it so that they can't keep their lifestyle anymore and i think that that's a pretty big concern so um if you can't get health qualified for a traditional long-term care product because they have really high standards at this point then a long-term care hybrid life insurance contract is the next best thing or a ccrc but that's neither here nor there i was just providing an example where i could see it but again that that example is because it's a permanent insurance product with a long-term care benefit it has very little to do with the cash value aspect of it like if i could get if i could do that on a ul or a whole life, so a universal life or a whole life product, I'd be fine with either one as long as it provided the long-term care benefit that my client needed. Um, and then do you like compare that to anything, Ian? Like, you know, saying like, okay, here's the trade-off. You could also 
stick a portfolio together and well, well, like anything, you know you what I mean, like it, carve something yeah. else. Well, like anything, you put it into a financial plan, right? So let's say that you're purchasing this product at age 50 for the client, right? It's a whole life product. Then you project out, okay, here are the costs, right? Here's how this affects what we were already assuming your financial plan to be. And on the other side of it, here's what we could do with that same money invested over this period of time, which turns out to be better. And I mean, that's the, that's the question you have to answer, right? Because ultimately the disadvantage of a whole life product is that even though people like to push them as super cash accessible and everything, the accessibility of the cash doesn't come in till age or till the product is like 20 or 30 years old right. till you've been paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars into it. So if and you're you going take to take a loan on it, right, right. And it's not, yeah, it's not really your money in a weird way. It's, it's very complex. So if you're not going to be using it for the original intended purpose of let's fund your long-term care with this, then I'm not a fan. So I would never recommend that product to somebody who was like, oh yeah, well, I, I want it because I could use it for cash if I don't use it for long-term care. I'm like, yeah, sure you could, but... You could also get a savings account. And yeah, but we could also not save have restrictions. It. We could also invest that money, and you could use it for cash next week if you wanted, right? Like, so I think liquidity has a pretty important role in somebody's financial future, and I don't think that whole life is great for liquidity, personally. But I've heard other arguments. I'm I'm more in Isaiah's camp. I would just there's just so many alternatives. I I I'd just rather keep it. Uh, simple and uh, put together my stair steps, understand my time horizon, and uh, either hold equities, hold bonds, hold cash, stay diversified, stay low cost. I mean, that's really what they're doing behind the scenes, and their buildings are really big. Um, obviously, there's a, a little bit of margin in between there. And that's not to say that I don't believe in insurance. I mean, of course, there's a time and a place, but... Um, I mean, I, I'm just a huge fan of the term and keeping, uh, you know, your your costs for insurance low, um, just like any any type of product. Just buy what you need. And I was going to say, the other thing I could think of is just the behavioral aspect of it, right? Of being like, well, you could save the money, but and people like tend to rate, sometimes tend to raid those things, you know, so the example of like the real estate, like that might be challenging from a behavioral perspective. Um, but on the other hand, I've seen, I'm sure you guys have as well. I've seen plenty of uh, whole life policies where there's tons of loans on it anyway. So just the behavioral aspect of all well, the money will be there and there's the, the liquidity, you know, it becomes okay. Well, I would rather them, I would rather them increase their 401k contribution exactly. if they need a behavioral trigger for how to, how to save right. automatically. Because if they're going to, if they're going to ruin their lives by withdrawing from their 401k early, okay, well, that's their choice and ultimately exactly. what they, what they want to do, but locking them into a whole life contract where they might pay for three years and then realize they can't afford it and cancel it and yep. get nothing. That's not a good trade off for me. So today we learned it's best to have a plan. Yeah. No joke. Well, <laughs> it's almost every, like every we episode that. ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isaiah, do you, if this was your, you know, your topic, is there anything on that you want to add or did we, you want no, to fight no, any of I think, us? Or? I think the, the business aspect, like the buy, sell and some of that stuff, that's all good. My, my biggest gripe with, with the uh, snarky comment to me is, A, did you actually read the article? First and foremost, most people don't. So hopefully you did. 
Um, second of all, if you want tax-free income, municipal bonds, that would be my suggestion. If you want to be able to access your cash, put it in an HSA and cover your expenses out of pocket if you can, and then reimburse yourself. That's one option. Second, open a Roth, wait five years, all those contributions you can take back out. That has more accessibility with the Roth option than the whole life policy that's going to take it 12 years or nine years or 10 years to get any sort of cash value. So I just really struggle with people saying that it's appropriate when, yeah, there might be a very small thing, but I'm not talking about business owners in this, this piece. Like that, again, are there exceptions outside of that? So many young people that I meet have whole life policies and it's easier for me to say, this is all crap and garbage to make sure that they get it instead of hearing the nuance like, well, it could make sense here or there. No, yeah, in a business situation, it does. Outside of that, I really don't see it. And the real estate example is great. I've not heard of that situation coming up, but I think that's actually a really good like lesson. Like, okay, if that's gonna be your approach to things. Yeah, maybe you do take the, the cash value life insurance piece to make sure you cover estate taxes, because that could change. But right now they're so high and that certainly could change the other way, swing depending on who gets elected and, and where the world goes in the future, because apparently us as millennials are gonna to wanna to tax everyone to death and, and strip all the wealth from, from the US. So who knows? I don't know. I just know I don't like whole life insurance and it's garbage, so don't buy it. I, I actually think the product is fine. I just think the culture around it is awful. It's terrible. But that's what happens when you get paid a lot of money to sell something. Everything starts to look like something that could be better with a whole life policy. It's my opinion. All right, so we learned don't freak out, have a plan, don't buy whole life insurance, and less and less and less. Some good examples. Um, talked a little bit about long-term care, talked about Corona. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.